Power On. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Pop Culture Retro-Rama Podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and I'm here to share memories, thoughts, and information on all manner of retro-related properties. Movies. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Music. I want my MTV. All right. Comic books. These ain't your daddy's comic books, fanboy. And toys. It's Castle Grayskull. And it's mine. Broadcasting to you from the depths of the Retroist Vault. So, come join us, won't you? Now, you're playing with power. Welcome back, friends, to a new episode of the Pop Culture Retrorama Podcast. For this go-around, I'm going to be discussing the epic 1982 sword and sorcery film, Conan the Barbarian, the John Milius-directed blockbuster that helped catapult Arnold Schwarzenegger into international stardom, showed that James Earl Jones could play a frightening and equally charismatic villain, and it was the perfect film that came out at exactly the right time to set me on the path of becoming a lifelong fantasy fanatic. To say nothing of the fact that it was, in addition, the perfect movie to not bring your grandparents to see on opening night. When Conan the Barbarian was released to theaters on May 14, 1982, I had reached the ripe old age of 10 years old. And, as I've shared on the Saturday Frights podcast and on numerous articles for The Retroist, my father very rarely ever censored what I wanted to watch. The reason for this, I believe, is twofold. One, when your child stays up at age three to watch 1931's Frankenstein, you might have a cinephile on your hands. The other reason is, since I grew up in a single-parent household, if my father wanted to see a movie, he kind of had to take me along as well. Many of those films, really important movies in my life, were seen at a local drive-in known as The 62, because it was located off The 62 Exit. I mention this because that place really helped develop my lifelong love and fascination with film. Probably like many of you who were lucky enough to grow up near a drive-in, one of its biggest draws, especially for a family of limited income, is you were able to see two movies for the price of one. Obviously, there were times when you had to hit the theaters if you wanted to see a certain movie. And while it's true I didn't have much while growing up, my father always made sure that on the weekend we were able to at least catch a movie at the drive-in or at one of the local theaters. Which is why we went to see Conan the Barbarian at the Malco Twin Theater. And for some reason, my father, wanting to show my grandparents a good time, brought them along. You should keep in mind, these were days when it was quite common to not have even seen a trailer for the film you were planning on going to see. Generally, the decision in my family to see a movie was based on the artwork of the poster hanging out in the lobby. And Renato Cassaro's movie poster for Conan is definitely one for the ages. A painted image of Arnold with a horned helm atop his head, bare-chested, and with the film's Atlantean sword raised high in one hand, with an illustration of Sandal Bergman's character of Valeria kneeling next to him with her hands on the pommel of her own sword. Much like the soundtrack, which I will get to in a bit, this one-sheet poster has to rank up there in the top ten of all time. If you've seen the film for yourself, you can probably guess my grandparents' reaction. 
My grandmother in particular was aghast at the amount of violence and bloodshed on the big screen. It was a movie-going experience that wouldn't be topped until a week later, when my father took us all to see The Road Warrior. Seriously, my grandmother absolutely refused to see another movie with us for a couple of years. She wouldn't see anything with us until The Cannonball Run 2 came out in 1984, in fact. Slave. Barbarian. Warrior. Thief. Conan. They said you'd come. A man of great strength. Conqueror. One who could crush the snakes of the earth. Of their own deaths. He's evil, a sorcerer who can summon demons. Day of Doom is here! What daring! What arrogance! I salute you. adventurer of all, the man they call Conan, the Barbarian, coming to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. The crazy thing is that the idea for a Conan film had been gestating since 1975, when producer Edward R. Pressman of Phantom of the Paradise fame happened to see a rough cut of 1977's Pumping Iron. The docudrama that would focus mostly on bodybuilders Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno. With Pressman during that advanced screening was a friend of his named Edward Summer, who, after hearing his friend musing about what kind of film they could get Schwarzenegger in, took him to a local comic book shop and showed him the works of Frank Frazetta. His legendary Conan artwork as well as the Marvel Comics adaptations by Legends Roy Thomas, who I talked about in the Starman episode of this podcast, and of course, Barry Windsor Smith. Actually, in a 2010 interview with Comic Book Resources, Thomas explained how Marvel ended up with the rights to the character, saying, quote, I put together a memo for publisher Martin Goodman, saying why we should license a character. I hadn't read a lot of Howard. I bought a couple of the books for the Frazetta covers, but I'd never really read them. When Goodman gave us permission to license a character, we figured we couldn't afford Conan. By that time, there'd been about half a decade of Conan coming out in Lancer paperbacks, so we figured no sense going after that. There was no way we were going to get it. I knew Lynn Carter slightly, who had authored a character called Thongor, who was half Conan and half John Carter of Mars. Lynn was great, but his agent kept wanting us to offer more money than the $150 per issue that Martin Goodman had magnanimously said we could pay for rights. End quote. 
Thomas would end up agreeing to $200 for the rights to publish comics featuring Robert E. Howard's iconic character. For 275 issues, in fact, from 1970 until 1993. With an 11-year break, I believe, rights issues to Conan also plagued Pressman. You see, as Thomas mentioned, Lancer Books held the rights, receiving them in 1966. The company, however, went into bankruptcy in 1973. It took Pressman two years to finally get the film rights to the character of Conan. It's been said that he had to spend $100,000 in legal fees, helping the two parties involved in the lawsuit to form Conan Properties Incorporated. And then he needed to pay them an additional 7500 for the rights to make the films. Believe it or not, the first draft of the screenplay had been co-written by both Edward Summer and Roy Thomas. The problem was, Paramount, who Pressman took the film project to, would offer up $2.5 million if they could get a screenwriter, a well-known screenwriter, to write the script which is how Oliver Stone entered the picture. I've read in a 2015 io9 article that Oliver Stone saw the Conan films as a franchise, one that could be revisited every few years and expand on the overall story, one that would be made up of 12 films. In addition, it was set not in the past, in the Hyborian age created by Conan creator Robert E. Howard, but quite the opposite, as it was meant to be set in the distant future, a post-apocalyptic world where he would fight against mutants and genetic abominations. Furthermore, as the script was written, for only the first film I need to add, it was estimated it would take $40 million to bring Stone's vision to the big screen. This daunting price tag, remember this was the late 1970s, plus the issue of finding a director for the film was one of the main hurdles they had to overcome. Oliver Stone was looked at as being the co-director on the film, along with Joe Alves, who had been the second unit director on 1978's Jaws 2, and would actually go on to direct Jaws 3D. Oliver Stone has gone on record saying that he actually approached Ridley Scott to helm the movie, but that offer was turned down. Although, they would gain Ron Cobb, who acted as set designer for that sci-fi horror masterpiece. At this point, due to financial troubles, Pressman was trying everything to keep his head above water. So, when John Milius entered discussions to direct, Milius was able to float the idea of a Conan project to the legendary film producer Dano De Laurentiis, who, after a year of talks with Pressman, managed to reach an agreement whereby both men would co-produce the Conan film. Here's the catch, though, friends. Dino financed the production of the movie with Pressman retaining rights on approval of script, casting, and even final decision on director, while earning, as I understand it, a payment as co-producer, a one-time fee at the cost of forfeiting any profits from the box office of the film itself. Jumping ahead here, once Conan the Barbarian had finished its theatrical run on an estimated budget of 16 to 17 million dollars, it had earned 140 million dollars. It was 1979 when John Milius was officially hired as the director for Conan the Barbarian. Actually, he had attempted to land the directing gig a year earlier, but with Oliver Stone's script something of a stumbling block for the director, talks with Pressman had come to loggerheads between the two. 
When Milius came on board, it was he and Ron Cobb that truly ushered the film into full production. Of course, the question was which story or stories to try and adapt. As an aside, while I am quite familiar with the works of Robert E. Howard now, at the time of seeing the movie, naturally I was completely in the dark about his literary creations, such as Cull the Conqueror and my personal favorite, Solomon Kane. In addition to Conan of Samaria, of course. At the time of Howard's unfortunate suicide in 1936, at the far too young age of 30 years old, there had been 21 stories published featuring Conan with three unpublished and four stories left incomplete at the time of his passing. When Summer and Roy Thomas had taken a swing at the screenplay, it had been based on the 1934 short story Rogues in the House, with Arnold Schwarzenegger apparently claiming that the Oliver Stone script was based, incredibly loosely, on Robert E. Howard's 1933 story Black Colossus, as well as 1934's A Witch Shall Be Born. It's been said that Milius made it pretty clear to Dino that he was going to rewrite the screenplay, which is understandable, as by this point he had already written the screenplays for 1972's Jeremiah Johnson, as well as The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, 1973's Magnum Force, 1975's The Wind and the Lion, 1978's Big Wednesday, and then Apocalypse Now in 1979. John Milius took it upon himself to read the works of Robert E. Howard to immerse himself in the world of Conan the Barbarian. While he did rewrite the screenplay, there were elements he kept from Stone's original draft, although expanding on them, such as the beginning of the film where we are introduced to Conan as a young boy and see what becomes of his village as it is attacked by raiders and how he is sold into slavery. Milius also kept the Tree of Woe and the scaling of the Tower of Serpents, which was inspired by the 1933 short story The Tower of the Elephant. It seems like the director really did himself a favor, though, by going ahead and not shackling himself only to the works of Robert E. Howard, as he took elements from the stories of L. Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter's 1967 story, The Thing in the Crypt, and even movies like The Seven Samurai and 1965's Quidon. So, with script in place, the cast needed to be assembled. And, I have to point out, that Conan the Barbarian boasts a pretty incredible cast. As I mentioned a moment ago, Schwarzenegger was the only real actor in the running for Conan himself. Milius, though, wanted the character to be a little slimmer. This was a person, after all, who was written as a thief as well as a warrior. To do this, Schwarzenegger lost 30 pounds, all thanks to an 18-month workout program that included swimming, climbing, swordplay, and even horsemanship. Added to all of that was extensive lessons with Robert Easton, a.k.a. the Man of a Thousand Voices. Not only did Easton work as a dialect coach for the studios, but he had 150 acting credits to his name when he passed away at the age of 81, back in 2011. Look him up, and I bet if you're a fan of films and TV, you'll recognize him. Just one of the roles he had was as the Klingon judge in 1991's Star Trek The Undiscovered Country. Arnold still had some difficulty with lines. It's been said that those speeches towards the end of the film were rehearsed over and over and over again with Milius. 
In fact, I've read that Schwarzenegger asked Milius to give him the simplest of advice while filming, more akin to orders. When he wanted the actor to do something or react, the director yelling, sit, stand, run, etc. James Earl Jones and Schwarzenegger became friends during the filming with Jones also aiding Arnold in his line delivery. But furthermore, he was interested in how his co-star was reacting to Milius's short commands, and asked the director to do the same for his performance. Schwarzenegger, it has been said, helped James Earl Jones with becoming more fit himself with a workout regimen. To play one of the two stalwart comrades of Conan, Jerry Lopez was cast as Subutai. Lopez had appeared in John Millis's surfing coming-of-age film, Big Wednesday, as Lopez is a recognized champion surfer. Millis himself not only loved surfing, but some of the situations in that movie were based on events of his own life. Now, much like Schwarzenegger, Lopez had extensive training in swordplay and so on. In fact, he and Arnold shared a place together so they could develop a bond between each other, which I think pays off, because you can see that friendship come through in the film itself. Sadly, while Lopez had the acting down pat, his dialogue was dubbed over in the final cut of Conan the Barbarian by Saab Shimano. The reason being, the studio felt Lopez's voice work wasn't constant throughout the picture. Sandel Bergman, who plays Valeria, the other member of adventurers that band together with Conan in his quest for vengeance, is also his love interest in the movie. Sandel, who is an acclaimed dancer, got her start in the theater, appearing in Broadway shows. She actually was suggested for the role of Valeria by none other than Bob Fosse, who cast her in a role in Pippin as well as a chorus line. Conan wasn't her first picture either, as she also appeared as one of the muses in 1979's Xanadu, which I will tackle on this show one of these days. Valeria was a character that appeared in the 1936 Robert E. Howard story, Red Nails, as a pirate that Conan becomes involved with. Some of her dialogue and the fate of her character are taken from another Robert E. Howard story, 1934's Queen of the Black Coast, with the character known as Baylit. Just like Jerry Lopez and Arnold, Bergman also trained hard, and she also suffered a pretty gnarly wound during the filming. During a sword fight, one of her fingers was hit, and while not severed, thankfully, it was skinned to the bone. Ugh, just thinking about it makes me a little queasy. Also cast in the film were three legendary actors. Perhaps legendary is a term that gets bandied about a little too frequently, and I know I'm guilty of it. But how else do you describe the talented Max von Sydow, Mako, and James Earl Jones? Sidow had already appeared in numerous films by this point, with The Seventh Seal, The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Exorcist, as well as appearing as Ming the Merciless in 1980's Flash Gordon. In Conan, he plays the worried King Osric of Zamora, and rightfully so. Lulsa Doom has bewitched his daughter, and he's in danger of losing his city. Mako portrays the Wizard of the Mounds, although... How much magic the wizened man is able to perform or even knows is up to interpretation in this film. Conan the Barbarian most definitely has sorcery and supernatural elements to it, but they are often downplayed. Focus of the film is on the will, the strength and desire for revenge of one man. 
I mentioned John Milius taking inspiration from 1965's Quidon. When the wizard is painting the symbols of protection on Conan's body, this was a nod to the story Hochi the Earless from that 1965 film. While Mako sadly passed away back in 2006, besides Conan and its 1984 sequel, he is probably best known for his Oscar-nominated role in 1966's The Sand Pebbles, and possibly for his voice work as the villainous Aku in the Samurai Jack animated series, or Uncle from Avatar The Last Airbender. Interestingly enough, he wasn't intended to be the narrator of the film. If you've seen Conan the Barbarian, you will undoubtedly recognize this intro. Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And onto this, Conan destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. If you recall, at the end of the film, where we see King Conan sitting on his throne, his brow furrowed from the weight of the crown of Aquilonia. This was intended to be used in the theatrical trailer. But Milius enjoyed the image so much, he decided to use it as the opening of his film, with an older King Conan, I suppose, talking to his son. The original opening read, quote, No, O Prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Aris, there was an age undreamed of. Hither came I, Conan, a thief, a reaver, a slayer, to tread jeweled thrones of the earth beneath my feet. But now my eyes are dim. Sit on the ground with me, for you are but the leavings of my age. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. End quote. There is much I dig about that original narration. Kind of like what Bernard Cornwall does with his Saxon series of books. But I prefer the finished film version with Mako's narration. Last, but certainly not least, there is James Earl Jones, who has amassed 190 acting credits so far, probably best known for voicing the role of the Dark Lord of the Sith, Darth Vader in almost all Star Wars projects, where Vader has a speaking role, excluding video games and Lego animated specials. Jones got his start in TV and films all the way back in 1952, in an episode of the soap opera The Guiding Light and he's appeared in Dr. Strangelove, The Great White Hope, Coming to America, Field of Dreams, and so many, many more. Jones was cast as the villain of the movie, the charismatic, almost Jim Jones type of cult leader, Thulsa Doom. For what it's worth, Thulsa Doom is actually the name of the villain of Robert E. Howard's Call the Conqueror, but the film version does have elements of Conan's actual archenemy, Tothamon. Jones expertly plays Doom as having a hypnotic ability with his eyes, but he is also a commanding military presence, as we see at the beginning of the movie when he raids Conan's childhood village, putting it to the torch and slaying his mother. Did I mention that Thulsa Doom can also turn into a rather large snake? Something that freaked me right out when I was a kid. Here's a fun fact. It's been mentioned that both John Huston and even Sean Connery were up for roles in this film. 
I can only assume that Houston could have been considered for the role of King Osric, with Connery as Doom. Which might have been pretty great. I love many of Connery's performances. But I don't think Sean's version could be as awesome as what Jones delivered. Now, there are two other roles and another element that makes Conan shine that I want to discuss before jumping into a brief synopsis of the film itself. Thulsa Doom has two loyal lieutenants. I would go so far as to say they are basically adopted sons. Rexor and Thorgrim. Rexor, who appears to be the more intelligent and skilled warrior of the two, was played by ex-Oakland Raiders athlete Ben Davidson. Ben had appeared in a few films before Conan, like an uncredited role in Robert Altman's M.A.S.H., as well as the black exploitation biker picture The Black Six. Davidson might be best remembered for his football career, one in which he helped to change the NFL's rules on personal fouls when his actions helped to start a brawl on November 1st, 1970, when he dove into a prone opposing player on the field. Thorgrim was played by the mighty Sven Ole Thorsen, who just so happened to be a friend of Schwarzenegger, a fellow bodybuilder and crown Denmark's strongest man in 1984. Sven has worked as Arnold's body double and has appeared in many of Schwarzenegger's films, in addition to having a career as a stuntman. Personally, my favorite role of his, besides the massive warhammer-wielding Thorgrim, was as Lieutenant Michael Tank Ellis from the Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future TV series. The other element that makes Conan the Barbarian so exceptional, beyond the story, Melis's directing, and the actor's performance, or even the practical effects that bring this sword and sorcery epic to life, is the stunningly amazing score by Basil Polidorus. Sitting in that darkened theater back in 1982 with my family, as Mako's narration ends, Polidorus's stirring track, The Anvil of Crom, kicked in, and my brain melted from my ears. It was the most epic score I had ever heard. If that music doesn't get you ready to face a legion of charging foes, then the frost giants of Nordheim have surely clutched your heart in their powerful grip. Basil Polidorus first became acquainted with John Milius at the University of Southern California. He even scored Milius's Big Wednesday, 
working with his friend again on 1984's Red Dawn and 1989's Farewell to the King, as well as 1991's Flight of the Intruder. Basil actually began working on the score for Conan before the film itself had been completed, using the storyboards provided by Milius to write the music. It's been said that John Milius told his friend he was envisioning the movie as something akin to an opera, with very little dialogue. Overall, Polydorus composed two hours worth of music for Conan the Barbarian, which saw a three-disc CD release a couple of years back, released through Entrada. Sadly, that special edition is no longer in print, at least for the time being. Polydorus passed away on November 8, 2006, at the far, far too young age of 61. He left behind, though, an amazing legacy of scores for films like Robocop, the Hunt for the Red October, Quigley Down Under, and Starship Troopers, to name a few. Now, let's get into the synopsis for Conan the Barbarian. If you've not seen the film for yourself, there are indeed big spoilers ahead, so you've been warned. After watching the forging of a new sword by his father, Conan is told the riddle of steel, of his people, the Sumerians, and their god, Krom. In doing so, Conan's father attempts to instill in his son that the only thing in the world that can be trusted is the steel of a sword. Some pretty heavy storytelling for a kid Conan's age, which might be about eight. But, as we were about to learn, it's a brutal and very unforgiving world. By the way, the inscription, the runes written upon his father's sword, reads, Suffer no guilt, ye who wield this in the name of Krom. Soon, the Sumerians are attacked by Thulsa Doom and his army of raiders. The village is put to the torch, and while Conan's father is able to stand his ground with his new sword, he is brought low by a pack of attack dogs. While Conan and his mother attempt to escape, they come face to face with Thulsa Doom himself. As I've already mentioned, Doom appears to have an almost hypnotic ability. Conan's mother drops her guard and is beheaded by Doom, leaving the children of Samaria to be sold into slavery to the Vanir, who were the enemies of the Sumerians in the Robert E. Howard stories. The children are shackled to a giant mill wheel known as the Wheel of Pain, forcing it to slowly turn all day, every day, for many, many years, until Conan has reached maturity and appears to be the only Sumerian left. Did the other children die off? Were they later sold? We do not know. But Conan is freed from his burden to become a successful and celebrated gladiator, receiving teachings from around the world until one day, due to his many successes, his master releases him. Whereby Conan, in his wanderings, comes across two things. One, a pack of ravenous wild dogs who chase him until he's able to find shelter a crumbled and forgotten tomb. Two, within this ancient tomb is a skeleton, a king upon a throne with a bony hand clutching the pommel of a mighty sword. As the tomb is underground, Conan believes this skeleton king might be Krom himself. But as the beautiful track used in this scene is entitled Atlantean Sword, fans can't help but wonder if the skeleton king might not be Call the Conqueror himself. Here's another fun fact. In the original screenplay, Conan was to have fought with the Skeleton King for the sword, like in The Thing in the Crypt that this scene is based on. Conan's wanderings lead him to both a witch and then Sobotai, who is a thief and archer. 
The duo forge a fast friendship and head for the city of Zamora on the trail of Thulsa Doom. It is in Zamora they cross paths with Valeria, fellow adventurer and thief, and the trio decide to assault the Tower of Serpents, stealing riches and overcoming the guardian of the tower, a gigantic snake. And I'm not just talking about a big snake here, friends. This thing is huge. It could easily swallow a man whole. While celebrating their victory, they are arrested by the guards of King Osric, who they find out will pay a king's ransom if they are able to kidnap his daughter back from Thulsa Doom. This is more of a suicide mission than a rescue attempt, and Valeria, as well as Sabotai, want no part of it. Conan, however, sees his opportunity to not only rescue Osric's daughter, but get his chance to slay Thulsa Doom. His attempts do not bear fruit, and for his efforts, he is crucified on the Tree of Woe, left to die under the beating sun. It looks like Conan's quest for revenge has reached its end. But he is rescued at the last second by Sabotai, who brings him to the Wizard of the Mounds. There, Valeria is waiting, and is informed a great price must be paid to spare Conan's life. A price she freely says she will pay. It is all that she and Sabotai can do when night falls to prevent the spirits of the dead from taking Conan. But in the morning, he is restored, and after a brief rest, the trio head off to once again attempt to rescue Osric's daughter and put an end to Doom. Once more, things do not go as planned. While the thieves do manage to snatch the princess from Doom's clutches, he himself escapes after transforming into a snake. Worst of all, as they ride from the temple, Thulsa Doom takes up a bow and fires not an arrow, but a snake stiffened by his words of magic, and it impales itself in Valeria's side. Conan's love dies in his arms, and is placed upon a funeral pyre upon the mounds, leaving Sabotai, Conan, and the wizard to prepare themselves for Thulsa Doom's attempt at taking the princess back. As Thulsa Doom and his right-hand men, Rexar and Thorgrim with their soldiers, ride to the mounds, after setting up what defenses they can, Conan prays for the first time to his people's god. Kron, I've never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you will remember, if we were good men or bad, why we fought why we died no all that matters is that two stood against many that's what's important Balor pleases you Kram so grant me one request grant me revenge and if you do not listen then the hell with you An epic battle is waged by Conan, Sobotai, with a little help from the Wizard of the Mounds. Seriously, the fight is visceral and brutal, but our heroes manage to survive the encounter, and Thulsa Doom is forced to retreat. Without the Princess of Zamora, I might add. Although, during the fight, Conan shatters his own father's blade, which is wielded by Rexor, taken after the raid on his village those many, many years ago. With it in hand, Conan once again infiltrates the temple of Thulsa Doom, where the leader is holding sway over his extremely large cult. 
As Doom realizes Conan has arrived, he attempts to persuade him that all Conan has accomplished in his life is thanks to Thulsa's actions. He appears to be using his hypnotic ability on Conan, to no effect, and the barbarian hacks the head off Doom's body with his father's broken sword, dismissively throwing the severed head to the stunned worshippers below. As the cult slowly files away, Conan is forced to think hard on what he wishes to do with his life now that his revenge is complete. Setting fire to the temple, it appears he has settled on claiming the reward offered by King Osric, as he and the Princess of Zamora ride off on horseback. Mako's narration gives us a brief wrap-up and promise of future tales of Conan and his friends, Subotai and the Wizard, who we learn has become a chronicler of King Conan. And that, my friends, is a very condensed synopsis of 1982's Conan the Barbarian. While we did get a sequel in 1984 with Conan the Destroyer, it does not measure up to the first film, at least for me. But there is still much to enjoy about the sequel. For a while, it looked as if we would indeed be getting a third Conan film entitled Conan the Conqueror. This title was announced on January 28, 2016. There was the tantalizing news that three of the original film's cast would be returning in this, well, I guess it would be a sequel to Conan the Barbarian. As it was mentioned, it would ignore Conan the Destroyer, as well as the 2011 reboot. In April of 2017, however, the producer for Conan the Conqueror revealed that Universal Pictures had decided not to move forward on the project, but there could be, possibly, a TV series in the works. The popularity of the 1982 film led to The Adventures of Conan, a sword and sorcery spectacular at Universal Studios Hollywood, a 20-minute live-action stage show that happened to feature an animatronic dragon, in addition to featuring music composed by Basil Polidorus. It's been reported it took $5 million to bring the show to life and was in operation daily from 1983 until 1993. There was an animated series in 1992 entitled Conan the Adventurer, which played for two seasons, and was followed by Conan and the Young Warriors in 1994. And then in 1997, Conan the Adventurer debuted, but this was a live-action TV series that ran for 22 episodes. Robert E. Howard's barbarian creation is no stranger to the realm of games. In 1984, three modules were produced for Dungeons and Dragons, Conan Unchained, and Conan Against Darkness, with a third adventure module entitled Red Sonja Unconquered. Also, in 1984, Datasoft released Conan Hall of Volta for the Apple II, Amiga, MS-DOS, Atari ST, and Commodore 64 computers. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I sincerely doubt we will see the popularity of Conan the Barbarian fade anytime soon. Who knows what the future holds for our favorite Sumerian? A new TV show? Or a film? Perhaps only Krom truly knows the answer to that particular riddle. I think that is about all I can say about 1982's Conan the Barbarian. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to what I had to share about the movie. In addition, I need to give a huge thank you to Josh Williams, one of my best friends and the one responsible for getting me to read the works of Robert E. Howard. Also, he was able to provide quite a few of the more interesting trivia for this movie. As always, I want to thank Rockford J. and Daniel13 for advice and support on this episode. 
For what it's worth, you can generally find me every single day, writing on the Retroist site, as well as the Diary of an Arcade Employee and Saturday Frights Facebook page. If you have any comments on the podcast, or maybe a suggestion for a future episode, you can contact me at vicsage at retroist.com. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our show is courtesy of Earl Green's thelogbook.com, kindly used with his permission. We need to thank the Retroist himself, not just for hosting this podcast, but for creating a spot on the internet where we fans of all things retro can get a daily dose. When you need your retro fix, and we all do, hop on over to the Retroist. Now, here is a hint on what I'll be talking about on the next Pop Culture Retro-Rama podcast. This has been a Retroist production. Thank you for listening, and have a better one. Goodbye.